This morning we're, we're going to do is, it's, it's New Year's. We're in the new year. This is technically the second Sunday of the new year, with uh, the first being last Sunday. And as I think about New Year's, oftentimes we think about uh, New Year's resolutions. I, I work out, it, I try to work out. It's workouts maybe a loose term in what I do. Uh, but it happens, at, when it does happen, it happens at a place called Planet Fitness. I go there because it's $10 a month. It's a phenomenal deal. It's as opposed to some of the others, you know, 50, 60 plus. Uh, so, but it's a cool place. So one of the things I've learned is I get there. I went this past Friday. When I got there, the place was absolutely packed. Normally, at the time that I go, it is relatively empty. And I just kind of moved my way through. In 45 minutes, I'm out of there. Uh, this past week was packed. I remember talking to the guy at the desk, and he says, statistically, the first part of January is the heaviest, heaviest attended time of the entire year. Now, some of that is, some of that's understandable because college students are home. So they're looking for a place to work out. But they said typically what's happened is all the New Year's resolutions, people are saying, this is the year I'm going to get it under control, and I am going to work out. So the place was packed, and I got through it. But it's, it's a time of year year where we work through resolutions. Weight loss is a big one, and getting myself fit is a huge resolution. One of the things that I've purposed to do as a pastor is every new year is talk about one of the resolutions that I would I'm always keep in front of my heart and my mind, and I want to keep in front of us, is quiet time and Bible reading. And we're going to talk a little bit about it. We introduced it last week. We have our reading plan that we do as a church. But what I want to do is I want to talk about a little bit why, just spend a message on why a personal quiet time or devotional reading in the Bible is important. Now, I'm going to not so much share my personal story. It first kind of came to my attention how important it is when I was um, first went off to Bible school. I grew up in a church, going to a church since I was a little boy. I grew up in a Christian home, a good Christian home, and I went to a Christian school all the way up through eighth grade. And would you believe it? I was never in all of that time encouraged to read my Bible for myself on a regular continual basis. I get off to this Bible school, and they have this time, a half hour every single morning, where I am required to sit down and do this thing called a quiet time. I'll never forget the first time I did this. I sit down, and in less than five minutes, I was done. I'm thinking, okay, I read it. Now what do I do? Because we've got to sit there for half an hour. So I remember getting my homework out and starting to do homework, and I remember the RA coming around, and the RA saying, no, you can't do that. You've got to put that away and do your quiet time for a full half hour. Now, <laughs> it was hard. But by the time I left there after two years, what I began to realize is half hour soon wasn't enough. So for me, and the life that I received from feeding on the Word of God and looking at it for myself, not just hearing it talk to me, but opening it up and meeting God there for myself was a cool journey and what it did in my own heart. But what I really want to talk about this morning is what it, the kind of the journey that I saw from a bigger picture in the church world and how I saw how important it is in the church world. And I'll start by sharing this, to kind of, to kind of get into that, is I have, uh, I've always been a competitive person. Always have been competitive. Uh, take video games. I enjoy video games. I never forget when I first got uh, our very first computer when I was a little boy, the Commodore 64. Some of you remember that. It's hard to even call that a computer. It's more of was a word processor with these little shapes on each key that you could hold shift and draw these neat little pictures on the screen. But there was a, they, they had these, I guess they were floppy disks. They were truly these big disks that truly did flop as opposed to the ones we saw then come later that were very rigid and hard. We put this disc in with, and we'd play this game called Montezuma's Revenge, as I remember. And it was this cheesy music and cheesy graphics and this little joystick and this little guy running around the screen. But I love video games. 
I remember going to a friend's house when he first got Nintendo, when it very first came out, and I just drooled. I could, man, he told me I got this thing. I remember going over to his house for the first time, loading that thing up, and watching that little Mario character who was in, I guess, what's even 8-bit graphics at the time, bouncing around on that screen, and I thought, this is incredible. But it, it stirred in me this competitive drive. I never did things just to have fun. It was, you do it to win. I mean, I'd do it if you can't win. You have now today, you've got Angry Birds, where now you can actually just touch the screen and watch things move and bejeweled and all this other fun stuff. But we is another thing. Our, our little boys have the Nintendo. It's, I shouldn't say our little boys have it. Daddy has it too. The, the Nintendo Wii. And they, one of my favorite games has always been Mario Kart. Love it. Matter of fact, I get made fun of at times for how sometimes how I say it, Mario, and they always reply to me, it's Mario, not Mario. But I'll be honest, I have a hard time playing it anymore with my little boys. My little boy, my oldest will soon be nine, and the youngest is uh, currently seven. Little boy. You know what drives me up a tree? They beat me all the time. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I used to be, this was a game where I really prided myself. I, very few people could beat me, and they just take it to me every time we play. So it's like, why bother playing? So I've always been, (laughs) you only do things you can win at. I've always been competitive. Uh, I think behind that is I've been very goal-oriented. I've always been a person that sets goals, sets a vision, and says, I am going to strive and work towards that. And I look at what that is. So in games, sports. Sports was a huge appeal to me. And we all know last night the New Orleans Saints won. We know why they won, because they got the ball across the goal line more than what the other, the Detroit Lions did. We know last week Penn State lost. Sports is a very easy thing. There is a goal. It's very easily measured, and we know what a win and a loss is. The business world, same thing happens. In the business world, you have, you know what a win and you know what a loss is. For some reason, as I graduated from uh, college and moved into the church world, suddenly I realized This doesn't quite work in the church. There's pushback on it. And I've always wondered, why is that? Why can't we in the church set goals and live for it and win? Why do we just get... Now, some of it, I listen to people talk and they say, well, you can't quantitatively measure spiritual growth like you can a football game. You can quantitatively measure a win and a loss in a football game. You can quantitatively measure in business a win and a loss. You can quantitatively measure in a video game a win and a loss. But I said, why can't we do it in the church? So I began on this journey, and I began to ask the question, doesn't Jesus quantitatively measure wins and losses? And my clicker is not moving. I was going to have a verse come up here. I'll wait till they re-engage my... There we go. There's my verse. Luke 19.10. Jesus came to this earth. He had a goal in mind. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So Jesus comes to this earth. He has a goal in his mind. He says, this is what I have come to do. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. I've not come to hang out with just religious people. I've come to reach people who are far from God and bring them home and, and back into the family of God. You then look at the reality of this and gets to Matthew chapter 28. Jesus ends his ministry. He's about ready to head back to heaven. And he looks at all these, this group of uh, disciples that were with him, people that were following him, close friends. And this is what he says. Then Jesus came to them. This is familiar verse. Verses to some of you. It says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, he gives us a direct command. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? Of all nations. Some translations say everyone. Some translations say the world. Go out into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus comes and he he doesn't say go evangelize. He says go make disciples. Go out to the world and make disciples. Go to people who are far from me and make disciples. Help them become followers of me. People that are far, bring them close and help them follow me. To me, I look at this and I say this is a measurable goal, isn't it? Can't we at the end of the year stop and say, did we... As a church, as a person, did we or did we not make disciples this year? Now, I go on and Jesus again says, this is an important deal to him. He wants to make this crystal clear. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again he repeats it. This is right before he actually, uh, the Bible teaches that when Jesus died, he then rose back to heaven after 50 so days, just final teachings with his disciples, and he says this. But you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. So he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come. You're going to have power. And you will be my witnesses. What's a witness? A witness is someone who goes out into the world and tells tells people what they've experienced, what they've seen, what what they have taken on themselves and taken in with their own eyes. And all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he says there's going to be this kind of concentric movement out into all the world. And you're going to be my witnesses to make disciples. Now, so as I'm early in, as a pastor, I'm beginning to say, isn't that measurable? So why is it then in the church do we push back on quantitatively measuring whether we're winning or whether we're losing? So I had my first go at this when I was a, when I was a young pastor, and I said I, the area where I was responsible for the church was our student ministry. So I said, I'm going to see if we can't quantitatively measure this and go at this and do it really well. So what we did is we actually created, um, our whole staff created this, this measuring tool. Now, this wasn't original with me. I did a lot of reading, and I tweaked some things, and, and our staff really embraced this, what we called the target. And every staff meeting, what we did is our goal, let me kind of explain it. On the outer part is what we called non-Christians or people that were far from God or unchurched was the language we used. So people that did were not disciples of Jesus and did not go to church, brand new. So in other words, uh, one individual I remember meeting who was in this category, when we met him, he didn't know when he, we talked about John three sixteen, the verse that says, for God so loved the world, he had no concept. He thought it was a mathematical um, ratio with the colon between the three and the 16. So they're the kind of people that we put there. These are people that are completely and totally, they know, they've never been in church, they've never attended church in their life, and it's a totally foreign concept to them. The next circle on the target is what we did, is we called them um, seekers or exploring. So in other words, these are people who we looked at and they said there is something going on in their life. Maybe they've been to church. Maybe they, they, they're, they're trying to ask the question, does God exist? Is Jesus for real? Is he for me? But they're asking the question and they're, they're engaging the process. So we'd, as we'd meet people, we'd put them in that category. The next category are people that would say, I'm in, but I'm fringe. I'm not totally sold out on this thing. I, I, I think Jesus is for me. I believe in him. But man, (laughs) I'm not going full bore in this. And then the final group is what we really pushed for, and that was to make them fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we use the great commandment, love Jesus, love people. Greatest commandment. 
So we looked at this and we began to process and every time a person would come into our student ministry, what we did in our staff meetings is we would try and track them. We'd say, where is this person? And we'd literally, we had a printout on paper where we'd put their name in the ring and our goal was to move people from that outer ring to the inner ring in a measurable way. So fast forward, we're on this process and we're beginning to ask, some, suddenly something pops up and this is where I realize why you can have a hard time quantitatively measuring spiritual growth. We're soon faced with the question, how do you tell if someone's truly a disciple of Jesus? And how do you really tell if they're in the middle? So we went on a retreat, we do this six hour offsite um, deal and we in this room and we have all these whiteboard charts with well, the question we've been asking if we could just pick without being legalistic and being hardcore in rules if we could just pick one trait that if we would look at students we could say because they do blank it is clear they're in the middle so we had all kinds of things and I might ask you I mean what, what would you put there what one trait really indicates would really tell you that someone loves Jesus with all their heart soul mind and strength and they love other people we had all kinds of things. We had things like, well, if someone really loves Jesus, they're going to bring their friends to our events, to church. They're going to, they're going to be engaged in witnessing to their friends. We had another one where they're going to share their faith. We had small group attendance, and they're going to be focused on strong, healthy relationships. We had things like church attendance. We had things like they're going to be actively involved in serving and not going to be selfless. We had missions trips. But through all this work, one eventually surfaced, and here's where we're going this morning. They'll be responsive to reading their Bible. And this kind of jumped out. I thought, well, that's my personal thing. I've always been passionate about that. But we really unpack this. What I want to do is I want to unpack with us this morning why this is a huge indicator of where you really stand in your relationship with Jesus. And why we can quantitatively kind of look at this and kind of measure and say, wow. If I am a disciple of Jesus, I am going to be plugged in at some level at trying to read my Bible. So that's what I want to do with us this morning. I guess I'd start by saying it this way. I want you to really think about the person you love most in life. Really think, maybe it's the person sitting next to you, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's um, someone you go to school with, maybe it's uh, who is the person you love most in your life? that you are the craziest about. And I want you to ask the question then, because you're crazy about them, because you love them, are you satisfied to just exist with them? Does it make you happy in your heart just to live life with them? I mean, don't at the end of the day, the people we love most, I mean, the one I love most is my wife, Tanya, love her to death. But because I love her, I'm not happy just to exist. I'm not happy to come home at the end of my day and just check out at home. Well, we're married. We're together. She's here. I'm here. Oh, well, we're, we're good. That doesn't make me happy. It happens at times, but I feel bad about it when it does. We want to honor them. We want to respect them. And at the end of the day, what we really want to do, don't you really want to be with them? You want to be with them and you want them to want to be with you. At the end of the day, we want to be together. We want to know each other. We want to get to know each other. And to me, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is a letter from God to say, this is how you're far, to tell you the story of us, God and us. He says, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you who you are. And I'm going to tell you how to come together in an intimate, close way. 
So if I am radically in love with Jesus, if I'm what I call a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am going to want to spend time here getting to know him. And it happens through this book. To kind of illustrate this, there's a verse. You could look at it this week. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. This, is, this, to me, is especially important for the religious culture that we live in here in, in Lancaster County. Jesus comes along and he says to these religious people, these religious leaders who know the Bible inside and out. They know it perfectly. They, they can recite whole books. They, they strive to live it perfectly. But he says this to them. He says, you guys diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But he says, these are the scriptures that testify about who? About me. And then he goes on, he he really drives a stake at their heart, and he says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So at the end of the day, you really don't know the scriptures. In our conservative traditional churches, I find studying the Bible to be at the top of people's list, but I find their relationship with Jesus to be at the bottom. It pains my heart to see. I know a lot of people uh, that I've met a lot when I lived in Charlotte in the religious area that the South is and here in Lancaster County and in many places of America who just passionately hammer. They want to know as a pastor that you're going to preach through chapter and verse and just devour this book. But yet when I really walk alongside of them, I say, but do you love Jesus? Are you coming to this book to really know this book because you want to know Jesus? Or are you coming to this book because at the end of the day you want to feel good and you can check off your religious duty of I know more of this book, so therefore I'm going to be got a better ticket to eternal life. So Jesus really kind of hits at the heart of this and he says this book is about knowing me and being close with me. So see the goal at the end of the day in Bible reading, is not just to read the Bible, but to stay alive in my soul. What I mean by that, Chris and I, we're going to be starting a new series next week talking about this very similar concept. When I am a Christian, when I accept Jesus, the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that I am what's called a new creation. I am now spiritually alive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, when I don't know Jesus, I have these blinders on. And now that I'm In Jesus, these blinders are gone, and I'm now a new creation. I'm alive for the very first time. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life to the full. But you know what the reality is of life? What's your experience in life? You become a new creation. You're a new Christian. You're excited. You're pumped up. You're ready to go. But what does life do to us? Doesn't it take it out of us? It beats us down. It drags us through the gutter. It, it, and so we're going to talk about, uh, in the coming series, we're actually going to talk about what it means to be a new creature, to be in Jesus, but yet still have the sin nature a part of us. And how do you live in that tension in that world? But part of it is, the goal is, is to stay alive in my soul. A verse with that, Psalm seven nineteen verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. Psalm 19, verse 7, the first part of it. This book, it says, revives my soul. As you think about the world, there are things in this world. Sin, it wars against us. You think about the world, John 15. What does Jesus say to his disciples in John 15? He says, hey, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Why? Because it hated me first. 
The world that we live in is not friendly to God and Jesus Christ, and it wars against us. So we've got sin, we've got the world, and on top of that, we've also got this character running around and all his friends named Satan. And it says in 1 Peter that Satan is like a lion walking around looking for people to devour. So when you've got sin, you've got the world, and then you've got Satan and all his demons running around to devour us, if I stay passive in this thing called a relationship with Jesus, I lose, and I lose big. I'm going to be devoured. I'm going to be destroyed. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. When I worked at Super Value, those two years, out of when I, those of you who don't know the story, I went to plant a church in Charlotte. Things imploded. I ended up out of ministry. I worked at Super Value right up the road here in, in Denver. Huge warehouse. I remember coming home night after night. I worked night shift. I'd usually get home at somewhere between 3 and 4 or 5 in the morning, and I'd just get home, and I would collapse. I'm wasted. I'm exhausted. I remember trying my hardest to go to that place of employment, a place where smartphones are passed around with pornography on it while I'm sitting at break. Sitting there trying to have break, and a guy on either side of me is joking and showing pornography on their phone, and they pass it right in front of me. There it is. I don't want to see it, but I see it. I sit and I engage with people that I love to death, and I want to reach them with the message of Jesus. But isn't it hard when you love Jesus and you engage with that world? You're now in that world. And I remember walking through things, and I remember being in situations where I'm like, boy, this is awful questionable what I'm doing right now. And I remember going at home and resting in my heart and my mind and my soul. And I remember having conversations with Tanya where I describe it this way. There were a lot of times where it felt like what happened is I was tied to the back of a pickup truck and just drugged through the gutter. Until I got home, my soul and my heart was depleted and empty. And if I stay passive in this world... With sin, the world, and Satan, I lose. I am going to be destroyed. I am going to be devoured in a way that's not pretty. So a quiet time is about me coming to a place every day to say, I am here to revive my soul. I am here to stay alive. I am here to meet Jesus and understand who he is and understand who I am and how to live well in this life. So the normal Christian life in a lot of ways... We're going to talk about this in the series coming up. The normal Christian life, in a lot of ways, is a repeated process of restoration and renewal. It's not this one time, yay, I'm in and here we go. It is a daily, continual coming to the place where I need to restore and renew. Just because I'm made new when I accept Jesus doesn't mean it's all good there on out till I get to heaven. I need to constantly work on reviving my soul. And I'll say it this, I'll say this too. As much as staying passive in this world is going to destroy me, do you know what else I found? Staying active can also destroy me. I'll speak currently for myself. I'm going to share this as I end the message in a little bit, um, where I'm at currently in my own soul. But I have found that when I get really busy in life, I also find my soul to be drained and empty. See, so seeing, staying passive in this world is also is, is very dangerous, but staying active is equally dangerous. That's why Jesus says to rest. Take a Sabbath. See, I think in life we get so busy. I get busy trying to be a husband. I get busy trying to raise four kids well, and that's not an easy job. Those two things on their own, to do it really, really well, you've got to really be engaged. I get busy leading a church. I get busy trying to reach family and friends and neighbors, and I get busy with mowing the lawn, and you get busy. 
And you get very active and, and you sign up to, hey, I'm going to lead a small group. I'm going to sign up for this missions project. I'm going to come help kids out on Wednesday night. I'm, and you get really active doing really good things. And guess what happens? You drain. So as dangerous as it is to stay passive in this process, I want to also throw the caution out. We've also got to be careful of just getting really busy for busy's sake. We've got to make sure, again, to daily come back to the place where I find rest. And I open up my Bible and I say to God, God, I'm here not just to read. I'm here just to rest in you. I'm here to depend on you. I'm here to feed and to, to take from you because I'm empty and I need it. And it's, I think it's good to have those times throughout the day where we just stop. There are a few things, honestly, that frighten me as a pastor and as a, as a husband and as a father. There are a few things that frighten or scare me more than the beginnings of barrenness in my soul. In that place where I can start to get, I feel empty. I feel frazzled. I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I just want to get away. When I begin to have that settle in, it scares the daylights out of me. To kind of compound it, I want to show you a few more verses. Look at this one, Deuteronomy chapter 32. I love this is in the Old Testament again, talking about the law, talking about the word of God. It says, when Moses finished reciting all these words to Israel, he just got done telling them, this is what God wants you to do, the Ten Commandments and everything else. He said to them, take heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. And look what it says then. They are not just idle words for you. What's it say? They are your, what's the word? They're your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. These words are your life. If you neglect them, you're going to die. You're going to shrivel up. So spend time, engage with them. I think I've found over the years is that when I take the Bible lightly, when you and I take the Bible lightly, what we ultimately do at the end is we forfeit life. I think one of the greatest things for me to do every single day, this is John Piper, um, kind of not fully his direct quote, but a thought that I've kind of pulled from him. He says, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every single day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Just me stopping every day and say, God, do you satisfy me completely? And come to the word of God and open it up and be nourished. Turn with me. I want you to look at this one yourself. Turn with me if you have a Bible with you to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're new to the Bible or new to church or Christianity, you're going to find Deuteronomy in the beginning. First couple, it's in the first five books of the Bible. Or grab your smartphone and you're going to find it there. I think it's important for us to learn to use this book for ourselves. That's why I like to always at least have a few verses we look at ourselves or get used to getting around in your phone. But Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1 says it this way. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today. So I want you to be, again, this is Moses talking to the nation of Israel. So that you may live, see this? There is a lot of connection to life. (laughs) Honor God and his word and you're going to live. And increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath for your forefathers. Verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. 
And look at what he, look at why they were in the desert for 40 years. To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your what? Heart. So I want you to understand something. Here's what's taking place. God is bringing these people into the promised land to be his chosen people, not because they're more special than the rest of the people in the land, but to say, I have a plan for these people to be used to reach the nations. Ultimately, it comes to the person of Jesus who was born a Jew in the lineage of King David as a promise to the Israelites' father, Abraham. He says, I've got this special plan, and this plan is so important to me. When you come into this promised land, I want to know that your hearts are pure and they're set on me and you grab who I am. So we're going to wander around out in the desert an awful long time until I can see as God that your hearts are in the right place. So he says, I want to see it. So here's what happens then. Look at the rest of verse 2. Whether or not you would keep his commands. Verse 3 then says this. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What does he mean? He says, I'm going to cause you to wander around out here and get really hungry. And as you get really hungry, you're going to realize that I'm going to feed you, and you're going to realize that you need to depend on me. But at the end of the day, he's drawn a spiritual parallel because he says, I want you to ultimately know that you need to depend on my words and feast on them. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, if you look at it maybe this week, is Jesus quotes this verse, and he says to his disciples, Listen, man does not live on bread alone, but he is nourished by the word of God. It's a crazy thought to think about. I have to stop and ask the question, how is my inner man being nourished? I mean, as I think about this, I think of um, this, the Bible's talked about a lot in in the Bible. Uh, This is a cool one to me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Honey was was like sugar, candy to them. Sweet, uh, ice cream is better related for me. Whatever the the sweet treat is that you love, honey was it for the... in the day and age before there was freezers where they could have ice cream. So I'm sure if, if they had freezers and they could make ice cream in the day, it would probably say, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than ice cream to my mouth. But whatever it is that you really enjoy, that's, that's honey. And he's saying the word of God is sweet to the mouth, to taste. And I don't know about you, but one of the things I love doing at the end of my day is coming home and gathering around the dinner table. For me, a lot of times, I neglect my body throughout the day. I graze here and there. I don't have a really good lunch. And usually until I get home, I am starving. And Tanya does a phenomenal job. She takes very personally. Just She does a great job cooking and taking care of our family. She loves it. She really finds life in it. And one of the things that I've found is I gather around that dinner table... As she provides, she's brought a lot of variety into my life. When I got married, I had my choice meals, and I didn't know what Mexican food was. I didn't know what pretty much anything was except meat and potatoes and French fries and pizza and and other corn pie. I loved corn pie and apple dumplings and things that, very Lancaster County, lots of carbs, lots of uh, comfort-type foods. Uh, But one of the things that I've learned as I listen to Tanya and watch her prepare meals is she has two things that she really cares about. She wants to know that we as a family are nourished, number one. So she cooks well-balanced meals and makes sure she's constantly bringing things to the table that are, um, at the best of her ability, are capturing what we need to live. But I've also learned this, and any cook will tell you this. Tanya's not alone in this. 
If you like to cook, what do you ultimately love at the end of the day? When you put food on the table, what do you really want? You want people to enjoy it. When you lay something on the table that you slaved away on, and you worked your heart out for, and they don't like it, how does it make you feel as a cook? You know, you're, you're not like, yeah, right. So I've learned this, and I've learned that, that my wife, a real heart for nurture and care there in the home, loves to make sure that we're nourished, and that it also brings pleasure. And I find that's the word of God. I think it's for that reason why, in a lot of ways, what, we, what I really strive to do is put together um, as a church to say, you know, we can measure a win. It's going out to the world, people that are far from God, bringing them into a relationship with God and seeing them grow as a disciple. That's a win. And to do that well, I think it's important for us to be engaged for all of us in the Word of God. Whether you know Jesus or you don't, you spend time in the Word of God, it will transform your heart and your life and begin to introduce you. If you're coming there to read it, to meet Him, you're going to meet Him. You're going to find life. So that's why as a church, what's very why this has just always become, ever since those early days as a pastor, when I started to figure this out, I've always done this. I've said, we're going to do a quiet time. Whether it was with the students that I led or other ministries that I've been a part of, we've always, I've always done this. You don't have to. If you've got your own reading plan, by all means, go at it. (laughs) I don't care what you read. Just read the Word of God and and meet Him there. So we put together this. We put it in the bulletins last week. So if you weren't here last week, you will find it's free to everyone. You'll find them out in the back. But all it's a reading plan. This year's reading plan, we're going to carry from our last sermon series that we did on relationships. Um, So this past week, we've been reading on loving God well. And just the verses in the Bible that talk about loving God and God's love for us, etc. So again, the reading plan is there. And I find what's helpful uh, to do this as a corporate larger group. Because what it ultimately does is it brings us in in this life together. It helps me walk through life and realize I'm not alone. It's kind of fun to then come to Chris and say, hey, Chris. Chris is, those, we work together, so that's why I pick on Chris a lot. But we come to Chris, and I'm able to say, Chris, you know, when you read this this morning, what in the world does this mean? Or we're able to walk along, or Chris is able to come along and say, Adam, how's it going with your quiet time? Because we're in it together. And it's fun to, when I see things and, and this big light bulb comes on, I want to go share it then. It's cool to have everyone kind of on the same thing where I can go say it to you, and you can share it with me, and maybe you get things out of it. That That's what the cool thing about the Bible is. Charles Ryrie, I'll never forget this. Charles Ryrie is, a, is an incredible author. He's written the Ryrie Study Bible, knows the Bible inside and out. I had him in college. I had him for two classes. And Charles Ryrie, I'll never forget, when he stood up in front of the class and he said, the beauty of the scriptures is that an eight-year-old child can come and read it and get something brand new. And myself, who has a PhD and, and knows Hebrew and Greek thoroughly, has written a study Bible, can come to that same text and get something for themselves. And something new every time. It's living, it's active, it's alive, and it brings us life. So it's cool to be on it as a group, to be able to come and for Chris to share what he got, for Tanya to share what she got, and here I got Mabby, I got something different, and really be able to look at the scriptures and bring them into my heart and my life. So that's why we do it as a group. So I want to encourage you this new year. If you don't have a reading plan, consider joining ours. If you have one and you got one that's working for you, by all means, don't jump ship to ours. Stick with what you got and, and do it well. 
But I want to share as I end, I want to share just my own story over the last uh, couple weeks to kind of share why this is so important and kind of wrap this whole um, kind of morning up. Ultimately, again, I mentioned, I don't want to read just to read. I want to read to stay alive. And as a pastor, people sometimes think, well, I'm up here preparing messages all the time. And I know this book so well, and, and all, I know all kinds of stereotypes of pastors. <laughs> some of them true, some of them not so true. But one of the things I find is doing what I do each week can really drain. And I've always vowed never to preach from, I always vowed to preach from the overflow. I never want to be scraping bottom. What I give out to people, I want to be of excess. Not, I don't want to be giving to you what I am learning today. Does that make sense? I want to constantly be giving where God has already worked, and I'm, I've been through that. But in church life, something that's interesting in church life is church life kind of runs on the school calendar year here in North America. So school starts in the fall, church kind of, that's kind of the beginning of this church year for, for a lot of churches. And it's kind of like you, you ramp and you run hard and all your new ministries, your ministries kick off and there's a lot of activity. You're very busy. You run hard, you run fast, and it kind of is this upward trajectory all the way to Christmas, because Christmas time, if we really care about Christmas, because Christmas is a time when people who don't normally come to church might check us out. So we put a lot of energy. So we run hard all fall. We aim at Christmas. But you, what happens, though, is what, what happens when you run hard and run fast? You tire. You wear out. You go empty. You dry up. That's why I love life cycles. It's, if you ever say and, and margin. And so I run hard and run fast. Well, then what happens is you kind of dip a little bit into the winter. And then Easter is right around the corner in the church world. So you ramp up again and push hard to Easter. And then the summer hits. And the summer in the church world just drops off the radar. I don't know why it is, but people just vacation mode. And it's just, whoo, and it, it, you coast kind of on out through until you hit the fall again. So this past, I share that to say the context of I'm running hard and running fast. And what I began to do is in middle of December, I greatly neglected my personal quiet time. Just, it dropped off the radar. Something I've always been very good at. It's been a discipline I've always been able to maintain through all kinds of areas of life. But this past December, it just kind of, it just fizzled. To the point where, honestly, the last, about two weeks ago, last two, three weeks, I don't think I hardly even had done a quiet. I hardly even opened it for my own personal enrichment, except for when I was preparing messages. Remember earlier I said it scares the daylights out of me when I get there. Now, equally, I was running hard and running fast. I was drying, and I began to, what I, I'm a, I'm not bipolar, but people make jokes about it seems like I am because I, I swing. I'm up and I'm down. I'm happy and I'm down and I'm all kinds of crazy things. And my poor wife has to try and live with it and figure it out and make sense of it. And she's helped me make sense of it. So this new year, I said, I'm going to really jump. I'm going to, I'm challenging the church. I need to challenge myself. I got to get back on the wagon here. So I picked this up and I started it. And if those of you who've been with it this week know that we were in Deuteronomy, Mark, uh, Psalm 139. And then we had this Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I'll be honest, I got to that day, I was very busy. I'm like, I'm just going to skip this. You know why I'm going to skip this? Because I know what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. I have this darn verse memorized. It was my wife's grandfather's life verse. He has this plaque hanging. And says, I know this verse. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your understanding. All your ways acknowledge him, and, and he will whatever. I can now. There you go. I guess I don't know it. So I, <laughs> so I know this. So it's, it's commonplace. I'm like, ah. So no, Adam, stick to this. 
not out of legalistic duty, but because you need to make sure that you stay alive in your soul and that you stay nourished. So meet God. So I open up my Bible. Maybe, hopefully, those of you were there, and this is kind of what happened. I thought, well, I want to read the verses around it. So it starts out, it says this, Proverbs 3, verse 1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. And then this one just hit me. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. I just stopped and I began to, I actually teared up and I said, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Uh, You know what, Adam? It left me two weeks ago. And I'm not fighting for it. So he goes on and says, bind them around your neck, write them on a tablet of your heart. Then you will in favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And then here comes the verses that are so common. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, it goes on. And again, fear the Lord and shun you. So there's all this emphasis about love and faithfulness. Love God with all your heart. Pursue him. And then verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. I stopped and I thought about that. And I, I thought about my last couple weeks, my last week especially. I'd come home and I'd tell Tanya, she'd say, how was your day? I'd say, you know what? I didn't want to do nothing to do but sleep today. There were a couple of times I was tempted to shut my office door, lock it, and go prop my feet up on the couch that's in there and just sleep. But I was so tired. I was down. I was, I was just, ah. And as I read this, I thought, might you be down, Adam? Because your body is not nourished, because you've been neglecting the food that God has given you to nourish your body? Sure, you're exercising, you're eating, but you aren't taking in life to your body. That just challenged me. I wrote in my journal, I wrote some personal things here in my journal that I need to really pay attention to. But again, it's been neat to see this past week, as even Tanya's noticed, I began to pull myself back out of this. I don't want to sleep all the time. I was actually able to stay awake and watch a football game yesterday. (laughs) A little side fringe benefit. But this is to me. This is to me. I want to win. I start out by saying I'm competitive. Yes, I know that. I want to win. I want to get to the end of the end of my race, and I want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear it. And you know what I know about most of you in this room? As I hang out with most of you and listen to you or read emails from you or as you talk with me in passing, you know what I've learned? You want to win too. Very few of you sitting in this room say, I really want to be a loser. You want to win. You want to win at this thing called church. You want to win at this thing called life. You want to win at this thing called family and jobs and work. We want to win. Jesus didn't leave that gray to us. He told us what it is to win. He made it very clear to us. And it can be measured, yes. But if we're going to win, my heart as a pastor is we need to have, it's imperative that we have a culture here at Bethany that nourishes and is pleasing. We have a culture here that just is, it's commonplace to be in this book. Not just to know the facts of it, 
to say I memorized X amount of verses or to say I know who Moses is and I know who Josiah is and I know who... uh, No. Well, we have a culture that nourishes and it's very commonplace to be in this book corporately when we gather like this and privately at home. And not only is it nourished, we also have a culture that goes with that verse in Psalm that's pleasing. It's not done out of duty. It's not done out of some kind of religious obligation. But it's done to meet Jesus and to enjoy him. Done out of desire and heart. In other words, I think what's really imperative is that we ultimately have a culture as a church that says, you know what, it's really weird for you to say you don't want to have a quiet time. That we have a culture where it becomes really weird when I sit down with some of you in counseling context and I say, so how's your quiet time going? It's just really when you feel really weird saying, well, I'm not doing one. It's my desire as a church that we really fight to stay alive in our souls. And we really fight to nourish ourselves. And we really fight not just to depend on what happens here on Sunday morning, but we really fight to stay alive personally in my own journey engaging the Bible and the spirit of God that he gave us and saying, here I am today, Jesus, to meet you, to know you more fully and to interact with you in a way that brings me life. To really stay alive in our souls. So this year, I guess the challenge is, this year the challenge is to really to do this thing well. Again, I'm going to, every year, probably going to get tired of hearing this every new year. Um, <laughs> we're going to stop and talk about this because it's so important to me. We just stop and we say, what is the Bible and are we engaged with it? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, you know so well our condition. You know that we're sinners. You know that we're human and we're not gods. You know that we're not perfect. You know that we struggle and we battle and we fight in life, just just to survive some days. But God, your desire was to see us not just to survive, but to really thrive and to find life. And because you knew all this, you entered our world through the person of Jesus. You engaged us and you said, here I am. I'm for you. I'm moving in your direction. Embrace me. Come to the end of yourself and acknowledge that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that you can't do this yourself. Step outside of yourself and receive Jesus. God, you delivered that message to us. And thank you for that. My prayer is that everyone here this morning really to their very core knows that they're a child of God. And if they don't, God, I pray that they would reach out to those around them or a friend and say, or come up and talk to me after the service or one of our elders and to say, what does it really mean to be a child of God and to be close with Jesus and to have that life? But God, once we have that life, God, help us as a church. We want to win. Not a one of us in this room wants to lose. We hate lo- I hate losing. I think many other people do too. We want to win. And God, you've given us your plan for winning. You've given us a goal to shoot for. And God, if we're going to hit that goal well, God, it's so important that we engage with you and that we walk with you and that we know you and that we're intimate with you. So God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you that you've given it to us. It's alive and it's active. My kids can, can engage with it and find life. Um, the grandpas and grandmas in the room here can engage with it and find life and all points in between. God, thank you for your word. God, help us to make it a priority as a church that we nourish and nourish well 
and that we are pleased and satisfied and enjoy it like the ice cream that I love so much or honey and sugar and the sweet things that we take in. So God, help us to feast and really eat and, and chew on this word very well. And help it just become a culture of who Bethany is where we say, hey, it's just normal. And when people walk in here and people who say they love Jesus but don't do a quiet time or spend any kind of time and, and with you alone, they just feel weird. Because it's so normal and so accepted and understood that because we love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will be engaged in the practice of a daily quiet time. Coming to the place where we say we need you and I want to find my soul happy and nourished in you. But thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the work that he does in our life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.